By the time that group broke up, Bill and Mike had become a fairly formidable rhythm section. The person responsible for bringing R.E.M. together was the aforementioned Kathleen O'Brien. She was a mutual friend who worked at WUOG, the campus radio station of the University of Georgia. She lived with Peter and a bunch of other people in the broken-down church, paying about $75 a month along with Peter, his brother Kenny, and a variety of other bohemian types. In about March of 1980, she introduced Bill and Mike to Peter and Michael. Talk inevitably turned to music, and with Kathleen's 20th birthday party only a couple of weeks away, it was decided that the four guys would throw together a group just in time for a big blowout on April the 5th. Rehearsals were organized, and the unnamed group learned about 18 songs. They were mostly covers by the Sex Pistols, the Stones, and Jonathan Richmond. It was agreed that they would play with two other local groups. There was Side Effects and a band called Turtle Bay. That Saturday night was cold and rainy. In fact, it was so cold that Peter remembers having to wear gloves for most of the night. Something like 125 people had been invited to the party, but by midnight, between three and 400 people had pushed their way into the church, and by most accounts, a good time was had by all. And that might have been the end of it for Peter, Michael, Bill, and Mike, had it not been for the problem with the beer kegs. See, Kathleen had rented a couple of taps for the kegs, but at some point in the evening, someone had stolen them, leaving her on the hook for about $200, some birthday present. That's when someone suggested that they hold a second party in order to raise money to pay for the taps. One of the guests at the original party was Mike Hobbs, a talent booker for Tyrone's, one of Athens' music clubs. He offered Peter's band the opening slot, suggesting that they could donate their $100 in earnings to the tap cause. Somewhat dazed at being offered a professional engagement, the new group accepted, mostly though as a favor to Kathleen. With the show set for May the 6th, the band knew that they had to come up with a name. After much debate over much beer, they finally settled on R.E.M., just hours before that show at Tyrone's. When that gig turned out to be better than expected, the members of the newly christened group began to believe that maybe there was something to their new hobby, and began to actively pursue new bookings. The rest of 1980 was spent playing shows in and around Athens, although they did make it into Atlanta from time to time. In fact, R.E.M. opened for the police when they played the Fox Theater on December the 6th. Most of the time, though, R.E.M. stayed close to Tyrone's. The first known R.E.M. recording was made during a Tyrone's gig on October the 6th of 1980, and by the end of the year, the group had close to 30 original songs. Some were pretty thrashy and punky, but others such as one called Gardening at Night, gave hints that the band had the potential of rising above mere frat boy party band status. There was a major development in the spring of 1981. Bill Berry had grown tired of being the band's de facto manager, accountant, and van driver. These jobs were assumed by Jefferson Holt, a big fan of the group and the former owner of a failed record store. Once he had familiarized himself with R.E.M.'s situation, he arranged for the group to make some proper demos booking time at a studio in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, called The Drive-In. After making the trip up the I-85 the night before, R.E.M. made their first real studio recordings on April 15th of 1981. One of the three songs committed to tape that day was Radio Free Europe, a song inspired by the years Stipe spent listening to European radio while living on that Air Force base in Germany. 400 cassettes were run off and tarted up with photocopy artwork, and then they were sent off to anyone they could think of, including, believe it or not, such long shots as women's wear daily. As you might guess, there were few responses. 
Several months later, Johnny Hibbert, an Athens law student who wanted to start his own indie record label, persuaded the band to let him remix and release Radio Free Europe. Despite a bad pressing, this new Hibtone single sounded vastly inferior to the original demo, the song created a much bigger buzz than anybody had anticipated. First of all, it was a little weird for its day. While the world remained awash in and besotted by synthesizers and metal bands, here was a rock song that wasn't played through martial amplifiers and didn't feature any guitar solos. Secondly, what was the singer on about? What was he singing about? He was obviously singing with great passion, but what exactly was he saying? And third, although the song rocked, there was a weird country and folk tinge to everything as well. Whatever the case, many critics and college radio programmers recognized this as fresh and exciting stuff for 1981. At the end of the year, Radio Free Europe was named Independent Single of the Year by the Village Voice. Way